Hey there, I'm Andrew Ainsworth, a proud supporter of Sword and Laser, thanks to Patreon.com. It's easy to set up, and what do you get out of it? Endless geeky bantering about the latest sci-fi and fantasy books. So if you want to help out, head over to Patreon.com slash Sword and Laser. Give a little, and get a lot of Veronica mispronouncing things. Sword and Laser. I'm Veronica Belmont. And I'm Tom Miller. Sword and Laser is a book club, but it is so much more. We bring you author interviews, news from the world of sci-fi and fantasy, and of course, amazing discussions from fans just like you. And today we're very happy to introduce our guest, Chuck Gannon. Mr. Gannon has written two books with Eric Flint in the 1632 series. His novels Fire with Fire and Trial by Fire were both nominated for the Nebula Award for Best Novel. He's a distinguished professor of English at St. Bonaventure University and one of 45-some science fiction writers who are a member of SIGBA, a think tank advising various U.S. intelligence and defense agencies. He's a busy guy. Chuck, welcome to Sword and Laser. Not so busy that I'm not delighted to be here. This is a great honor and a great pleasure. Thanks for having me on, guys. Oh, thanks for joining us. If I remember correctly, uh, we met you at DragonCon while we were on the intoxicated side, I think, at, at Mike uh, Cole's party. That um, that's probably why I'm here at all, I guess. Yeah. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I've had your business card laying on my desk, I think, ever since I got back from DragonCon. Um, but we're so happy to finally have you on the show. Uh, do, you, do you go to a lot of events like that? Is, is DragonCon something you regularly attend? Uh, I've I've gone uh, I've done Dragon Con I want to say two or three times now the last two yeah at least three times uh, and I do that and I do Worldcon and I just came back from World Fantasy and so I do probably someplace between nine to eleven events a year and um, they far more exhausting than what I come back to which is essentially catching up on a a four child backlog situation uh, so that's where the, <laughs> that's what that's what really soaks up the energy. Well, tell us a little bit about how you got into writing uh, and, and how you became an author and were able to make this your, your gig. Um, well, I, I, a, lifelong, a lifelong obsession with it before I even knew I had the obsession is really the answer. Uh, what I mean by that is when I was three, I believe I, I consciously said to my parents, I want to be a paleontologist and write about it. And then I think at about six, I said, I want to be a zoologist and write about it. And then I wanted a, something like eight or nine to be an astronomer and write about it and astronaut. But that seemed really dangerous. So maybe not. And then someplace around 11 or 12, I said, I want to do all these cool things. But then I also learned that 99% of the time you do in those cool things, not always the most exciting stuff in the world. So, but write about it. You mean I could learn about all this stuff and write about it? So I pretty much knew from age 11 or 12 I wanted to be a science fiction author. And then there's a, a history of, uh, of, of I, I wouldn't say wrong turns, but it has been a really interesting journey of accumulating uh, different perspectives and different skill sets to be able to make it happen. Well, I can definitely tell that throughout all of that, the common thread was the writing part. Oh, yes. <laughs> so for someone who's not familiar with your work, and many, many people in our audience are, we had tons of questions in our Goodreads thread about you. Um, but if someone's unfamiliar with you as an author, what books should they start with? That's a that's a fine question. Um, you know, I have one. Raising Cain is out right now, uh, and uh, as much as it's the third book in the series, I'm not... That, that everything that's sm the smart response to that question is 
not the third book in the series. But I would actually say that's the one I would like people to start with. Really? Uh, be- oh, absolutely. Because first of all, I'm, I'm shameless in my shameful self-promotion. Um, but, uh, but the other thing is that actually the reason I recommend that one is because the first two in a lot of ways were, were stage setting. Um, I, one of the things that I, I really set out to do when I wrote this, and it's been in process for a long time, I started the research on this and uh, a lot of the background material in 1990, 1991, and certain aspects went back even earlier than that. I knew I wanted it to be hard SF. I knew I wanted it to uh, in, involve a lot of not only my interests, but, uh, but some of my work in futurism. And uh, at the same time, I wanted to tell a, a story that I guess you could say, um, I don't want to say re- but let's say revisit and refresh some of the some of the classic science fiction tropes that I think are wonderful storytelling devices that unfortunately show some of their age in terms of their cultural and stylistic presuppositions. Um, so that was the and and really so the first two books were very much stage setting and, and sort of saying, hey, yep, there's a first contact story here. Um, and there's also then a uh, obviously things don't go too well because then we have an alien invasion story. Um, and, but the third one is really where, let's put it like this, uh, Tony Weisskopf, uh, my editor and publisher, uh, was describing these books as sort of, you know, definitely hard SF intrigue and military. But then the, the term in the third book has started creeping into the zone, I guess, that is nearest and dearest to me, which is big idea books. So where I'm going, who I want to do, what, who I want to do. Wow, that's awful. It's a different series <laughs> uh, altogether. So, yeah, so uh, it, it, indeed it is, and that one is not fit for my kids to listen to, I guess. So at any rate, um, but wh- where I, what I've been aiming at is the big idea sort of stuff. So actually I would aim them at number three, and if they go there and they say, well, you know, I like that, I, I, I would, then they might, I think, find it uh, even more interesting to go back and see the, the two earlier books in the series in the context of that. So think of them as prequels if you do that, sort of? Um. Well, you could. Uh, I guess you could. I, I would say that uh, you know the first two are essentially the, what I call the contact arc, and the next three are what I call the emissary arc. Uh, deep contact becomes uh, first contact becomes deep contact, and that's where uh, that's where I get to play with uh, with exosapience and truly different cultures and truly different viewpoints. Which, of course, there's no better mirror uh, in which to see our own as human beings. Well, as Veronica mentioned, we got some great questions uh, from folks in the audience. So we'll start off with one about Raising Cain from George, uh, who just started it and said, I was wondering how much of the overall story arc was already mapped out. Do you have a way to finish up the world quickly in the unlikely event the publisher didn't want you to continue? Which, of course, they won't. They'll want you to continue. Uh, But he also says, have you considered some novella length stories set in that same world like Opal's backstory, a la what James S.A. Corey has done with some of their expanse stuff? Uh, the 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 really quick answer because they must all be quick answers uh, to that is that um, the the backstory on that well as as I said it really has been uh, generated for a long time um, and I've known I know for instance very much very much in detail where the next two books are going as a matter of fact I've just started book four right before I went to World Fantasy I know what's in that book and I know what's in book five and I'm, I'm not saying that book four isn't going to be a fine book but there's some there's some hash I get to settle in book five that I'm really looking forward to insert evil gleeful laugh there um and and then i know pretty much what comes for the next three there are a variety of side paths as well i mean just to give you uh, i'm looking at side arcs i've been i've been fortunate enough to be approached by 
just a bunch of uh, you know colleagues who've said uh, we'd we'd like to have fun playing here too. So there are uh, a couple of more threads, uh, with different arcs that will come off from that, and I'm pretty familiar with what's going to go on there. Um, I, I love being an author, but probably the thing that comes easiest and fastest is world building. I worked in gaming for Game Design Workshop, so if anybody has heard of the, uh, it should be archaic a game, but it's still out there cranking uh, called Traveler. I I did a, a lot of work for that, and um, so this this tendency to come up with ideas and worlds is something that you know you got to find somebody to sit on me, or I'll just keep doing it. Well, speaking of your world building within that series, Aaron wants to know: uh, Were you aiming for your Kane series to be written to sound and feel just like a sci-fi story from from fifty plus years ago? Did you go for that kind of vibe, or is that something that just happened naturally with your style? I, I think you know that's interesting. I don't hear that particular spin a lot. Mostly, what I get is people will say, "Wow, you know, that's a." I recognize that trope from back when, for instance, I you know the the fifties, uh, sixties, even the early part of the seventies, and also the tone. Um, when it comes to the tropes, absolutely. Like, I really think those are wonderful story approaches, and I would really like to see how they fly now. Uh, as as one person put it on um, at Barnes and Noble, they they did a, um, a couple of reviews of this past year's um, uh, Nebula nominees. Uh, uh, new school, old school is what they <laughs> called it. I'll take that. Uh, I think the tone in book one and two is a very Beltway can do tone. Um, that's a lot of what's going on. That's a lot of the characters. There are definitely a lot of uh, characters from what I would guess you would call developed world sort of perspectives there. And uh, I think the other thing that's there is I'm, I'm, uh, I'm 55. So my notion of um, a, a situation where you have a crisis and a conflict is very much informed by what I heard from uh, uncles and my father and the war in which they served. That was a civilian war. That was a civilian soldier war. And that creates a, a different ethos and a different outlook uh, than you get, I think, in what we have today. A lot of today's, for instance, military science fiction. I'm not, I'm not passing positive or negative judgment on this, simply saying it's very much informed by our current professional military ethos. That is not the vibe that I wanted for this book. And I, I suspect some of that also comes through and, and gives it that uh, perhaps a, a little bit of a, a retro World War II feeling, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and anybody who's watched a World War II movie versus a, a modern you know, film set in maybe Iraq or something, you can, you can see exactly what you're talking about there in those different approaches and those different feels. Even even the later movies, for instance, Saving Private Ryan mm -hmm. or or uh, or um, Band of Brothers, uh, it was a it was a different time. It's a different war. I think one of the things about that uh, is you know there's uh, a favorite movie of mine, which actually influenced the first book more than a little bit. I don't know if you're familiar with Three Days of the Condor. Oh yeah, uh, Robert Redford, and there's a point at which two people, a new intelligence officer and an old intelligence officer, are talking, and the new one says, you know, you were there in World War II. What do you miss the most about it? The action of this and and the the older intelligence officer who's played by John Hausman, leans back in his, perdition, in his patrician style and says, I miss the clarity. <laughs> and uh, that's, I think the clarity is one of the things that I try to bring back. Now, Wendy has a question. Uh, why does that evil branch of humanity guy like olives so much? Seriously, is this just a plot device or will it have later significance? Will he choke on an olive pit, perhaps? <laughs> I think a lot of people wish he would. Um, gosh, Wendy, thanks so much for just cruising right over the border into spoiler land there. Um, well, <laughs> <laughs> no visa required. Um, there is a kind of deeper significance. And, and for folks who are familiar with the series, and I'm going to presume that, that perhaps a fraction of your audience uh, will be, there are a couple of references to, um, uh, to, to the notion that 
things have been going on there for a lot longer than we believe when we first come on the scene. One of the things that always strikes me about first contact stories is that usually, in some ways, it's very it's very humanocentric. It's very oh we're you know we're popping out of that we're we're the we're the new plant popping out of the seed pod and and everything is new and and. And the bottom line is, in mine, no, actually, uh, you know, things have been going on here for a while. And it may look new to you, Sunshine, but actually you're part of other people's agendas. You just don't know it yet. And so the fact that he likes olives, the fact that uh, he shows up in Greece, the fact that some of the things that are found uh, when they, they don't, their first contact is actually with archaeological, uh, very, very old archaeological ruins. And there, there's a sense of strange, uh, I guess you would say, cross-pollinizations possible. So it, it serves I guess you would say, I, I got my degree, part of my degree was in semiotics, so you'll forgive me, uh, saying that there's, there's a sort of a, a faint, I guess you could say, semiotic resonance I'm trying to set up at various points that sort of uh, build a feeling without sort of coming over the top and saying, this, pay attention to this. Yeah. So your olives are the signifier in that, I guess? Uh, or the signified, both. Who knows? Okay. You know, it's all yeah. reflective. It's a, it depends. <laughs> now, now we're talking deconstruction, and I can speak that language, too. So, okay, yeah. But I think our audience will appreciate it. Okay, language talk. nerds. Yeah. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> George comes back with another question. Uh, Chuck, did you know Bob Eggleton, who draws the amazing cover art before the collaboration? How did you meet, if so? And how much collaboration is there on cover art? So um, this is this is uh, the 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 answer in in C, the answers in sequence are yes I knew him before I knew him from the con circuit I knew him from um, walking up to him he had done a cover for one of the uh, books by uh, done by um, Eric and Rex Poor which is a hard SF series set inside the solar system no faster than light travel where again you know objects uh, artifacts have been dug up around and he had just done this beautiful cover for it and I came up and I said you know usually I'm a sucker for the photorealistic but there's you know you are just you're doing absolutely astounding work and I love it and so uh, they did the first art, uh, cover for um, <laughs> for fire with fire, which is which received some very interesting comments, and I can understand why. Um, but then we did the second cover together, and uh, Bob. So I worked also in advertising and television. So some of the stuff that I always did, for instance, when I was working advertising, is I'd go right to the graphics people and I'd say, "Look, here's my idea. I want to work it through with you." I think that there's a there can be you know people are working across purposes when when you're trying when what you're trying to do is tell a story or sell an idea or something like this. To me, the earlier you're 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 sort of you're in synergy on that, the better off it's going to be. So what I did with um, what I did with Bob was I said, "Look, I got three different chapter excerpts." Let me send them to you, see what you like. One of them had a big gas giant in it. He, he saw that, you know, purple and, and fuchsia and, and ochre were all possible. And he loves a big canvas with big colors. So he did that. And then this last one for Raising Cain, um, actually, he turned out to be, if you, if you were to flip back the cover and take a look at the dedications, he was, one of, he was a creature consultant for me. Um, we, had, uh, we had huge fun. I was at the... Um, I was at the at San Jose. Was I seem to recall the 2013 Nebulas Correct. were there. Yes. And it, you, it, hard to believe that there was absolutely no coordination between this, but there was a science fiction Comic Con sort of thing going on, literally right next door. Literally right next door. I walked in there. He's got all his kaiju sort of canvases around him, and I said, 
So Bob, you think you could do me, uh, you know, another cover? He said, well, if Tony lets me, and I said, what if I put a kaiju or something like a kaiju in the book? And he said, dude, I am so there. <laughs> and, uh, and so that is really how that cover took place. And we went back and forth on the creature, not just, not just the, um, the graphic, but actually, if you will, the background biology of the creature and it's, it's sort of its life, it's, it's the way it goes through life and, and all that, the, those sort of zoological aspects. So, um, so very, very close cooperation. I, I, I don't know guy. if I've ever I don't know if I've ever heard of a story where the cover artist informs so strongly actually a, a character or a creature in this case within the story um, that, that helps with the formulation of that. I think that's pretty remarkable. Um, well I, I I'm a real believer in cooperative effort. I'm a real believer you get the best out of experts when you let experts do their work. And I think if you let an expert in the process late, don't complain when you know the they don't necessarily – they can't bring the best game to it because you only let them in the last two innings. So um, so I was right there. I knew Bob. We, we got along like a house on fire. He's from my old stomping grounds. I went to school in Providence. He lives in Providence. So um, it was just uh, – it was sort of like I guess a, a fated in the stars, which is I guess particularly appropriate for a science fiction writer. Um, and, uh, and we just had a lot of fun with it and I'm hoping um, we'll be doing another one soon. Very cool. It, I was wondering if – did you find some unexpected benefits of having an artist's mind talking about these characters? Because in my, in my experience, artists think about movement and, and internal structures and, and things in ways that I could never do myself. Yeah, I, I would say, and it's difficult. I'd have to go back and look at the notes because it truly was not something where I sat there and I had an idea and I said, yes, Bob, and okay, I can, I can. It wasn't like me sitting there and sort of dishing out little little gimmies. It was a genuine, honest-to-God process. And one of the things that, that we worked on uh, quite a lot was these, these protrusions from the creature's back, which uh, look like wings, but that's not their purpose at all. They're, they serve actually more like uh, a simultaneous uh, signaling device to others of their breed and also extendable snorkels. Um, and and, uh, and so we went back and forth on how they'd work. And I originally thought them being one way. And then he said, but wouldn't it be cool if the biolumin they were bioluminescent so that when they were signaling, actually, that's when they turn to color. If they're not signaling, they're sort of a done camouflage color. So, you know, that's just one thing that I can remember. And we were just, I mean, you know, we were just geeking out back and forth for the better part of a week, you know, with, with what it was going to be and, and the different sketches as we move towards cover. Well, we've got a bunch of world of questions talking about your world building here. First one comes from Andy. Says, I know that you have developed a deep understanding of the economic and political ideologies that drive our world. How does that expertise inform your world building choices? Is it different for the Kane series than it is for, say, historical fiction like 1632 Project? Oh, well, 1632 is all is all history. The interesting thing about that novel and the entire series, for, for folks who might not be that familiar with it, is that there's really only one science fiction or fantastic event, which is the actual transposition of a small town in West Virginia in the year 2000, a uh, six-mile six mile diameter sphere, I believe, to, um, to <laughs> a really inconvenient location in 1632 one right in the middle of Thuringia in right in the middle of the 30 years war. So, you know, to talk, talk about getting a, a fish hit in your face. That, that's, that's one for them. And, uh, and from that moment on though, everything else is played like a historical novel. I have learned a huge amount, at least for me, compared to what I knew before about the 17th century and the amount of brain power that's been brought in of, of involved experts who 
the number of people who love or teach this center are, are researchers. And they've not seen a lot of fiction on it. They see this and they see it now. Into, I don't know. What are we at? 19 novels. It's something like 8 million words in print at this point with all the electronic stuff. And, uh, and they're just over the moon. So they're always sitting there and they're always commenting. And we have the rule of five. The rule of five, it's one of several rules, which is if only five people people in the world know that what you're saying might not be the case, you can probably get away with it uh, because probably only three are reading the series right now. Um, <laughs> and they'll just sound like cranks anyhow. But at any rate, we... but. But the bottom line is there's so much that, that has actually come to light in the course of working on the series because the Google project of actually creating, you know, facsimiles, online, scannable, searchable facsimiles of all of these documents from back then, you know, every once in a while you go, oops, and, <laughs> and you just have to sort of roll with it or write around it or, or, you know, sort of retcon it as the case may be. So that's a very different experience. Um, in the case of um, uh, the, I guess you could say the economic and political ideologies that drive our world, if I if I remember that phrase correctly, yeah, that's uh, mm -hmm. um, is that uh, yes, and it does inform it. It forms it quite a lot, but perhaps not in the ways that a lot of people uh, might might presume in a science fiction novel. I'm really. Um, I certainly have political opinions, but I do not believe – I did not do this as a professor. I do not do it as a writer. I'm not really interested in partisan politics. I'm a real believer in process. Uh, if, I, if anybody was going to say, so what would you like to walk away from one of – you know, what would you like for me to walk away from one of your books with? What would it be? And it would be that thinking – and rigorous thinking and out-of-the-box thinking is an absolute essential thing, regardless of what your political opinions are in a pluralistic society particularly. And so, so, when, so the, to back up then into how my economic or, or you know, political, uh, if you will, research or, or views look at this, if you were to look at each one of the um, alien species, um, what you will find if you zoom back, because a lot of people are going to say, ah, I don't want to, I don't care about a book that has people go on to other stars and meeting creatures that don't exist. And, and there's a fair comment to that, but that's one of the reasons why I wanted to make each one of them, if you will, an exploration of a, a presupposition or a concern that's actually present in human history and sort of play it out, max game it, if you will. And what if somebody evolved, if, if another species evolved to make that the center of their universe instead of, let's say, the center of ours being, I mean, we're omnivores. We have a whole, if you will, evolutionary blueprint. What if I give them a different evolutionary blueprint such that issues of, for instance, community versus you know, individuality become the primary driver for them in some ways, maybe even directly connected to their survival. So there's always a, a, an attempt I, I am, I'm engaged in, a discourse I'm engaged in between what I try to make a very sort of you are there feeling future that's also, however, tied back in certain of its resonances and echoes to things that, that we ask about our own, our own nature as human beings in human culture. Wow. That's, that's awesome. Um, I, I'm Sorry excited. Sorry if I paralyzed you. <laughs> no, I was just, I was just taking it all in. Blew her mind. A wave of explosion. words. Explosion. Um, I'm actually excited about these next couple of questions because they, they touch upon a little bit, uh, on your, your involvement with Sigma. Um, this first one, not as much, but Heinz says, I, I love the hints of real world knowledge on the intelligence community, the military and the movers and shakers of the business and industrial contractor world. Um, I'd like to know if this is either at least a bit of real world firsthand knowledge, or if this is the hallmark of one hell of a keen researcher. And if it is, 
indeed the latter. Uh, what is your own reading list like? So a two-parter. Yes. Well, I'm going to answer the, the second part first. My reading list is like this, very long. Um, that's, that's certainly what I can say. And sometimes kind of esoteric. Um, you know, I look at my own reading list and I say, man, you got to get a life. Um, but, but so there is an awful lot of research that goes in. However, when you, I guess going into my personal experience that I, that I find myself using frequently, um, through Sigma, I've, I've, I've worked for a, a number of agencies. There's, there are a couple of three letter Intel agencies. I, I have non-disclosure agreements with, so I'm not in a position to really talk about them. But uh, ones that never made me sign an NDA are DARPA, Army, Air Force, National Reconnaissance Office, uh, uh, NATO, DHS, NASA, Battelle Corp. Um, and although the Navy didn't bring me in, Annapolis brought me in to speak one time. So that's sort of – so I'm, I'm, I'm walking in those areas, I guess you could say, and sort of getting the vibe on that um, from a from, – you know, so that's, I guess, one part of it. The other part that I find myself using a lot is um, I've done a bunch of Fulbrights over time, and that's put me and, – and I've also had a lot of embassy grants overseas, usually the UK and the Czech Republic. And I've been around a lot of diplomats and dueling politicos in cocktail parties where, let me tell you, sometimes I think the only difference between that and the, and the if you will, wargaming scenario situations in the military is that the, the wargaming and military ones are actually in some ways less vicious. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, so you get certain vibes. You know, I, I've been I've been fortunate enough to, I guess, walk those those corridors. And as it went in television, I was working mostly seventy percent of what we were doing. There's decent money and living to be had in doing videos for Fortune fifties, and that was everything from big pharma to finance, media, industrial, and um, you know, I know that uh, uh, some some people have have been surprised. I guess that uh, I've been I've been called a statist by some fans um, and uh, some readers who otherwise like my work. And all I can say is I was shooting video on the 22nd floor of Goldman Sachs the day of the Mexico City earthquake. And I guess you can say that certain opinions get formed at moments like that. Mm -hmm. So while I would not necessarily call myself a statist per se, uh, I certainly am. I have also some very, very deep distrust of certain corporate entities. Mm. Gotcha. And then Alistair uh, says, uh, from your experience working with Sigma, uh, did we, I'm not sure if we got into this too much, but it's a it's a, a group of sci-fi writers who offer futurism consulting, correct, for the United States government. As our as our uh, as I guess our founder and chief cat herder puts it, science fiction in the national interest. Although I think a lot of us really think of it also in the global interest. But yes, that's what it is. A, a bunch of folks you've never heard of, like you know, like Jerry Purnell or David Brin or right. Larry Niven or yeah, but, <laughs> just just guys. Like that, yeah. yeah, exactly. Those guys, the guys, people who need something to do, damn it. Yeah. So are, if you can mention it here, Alistair asks, uh, was there an idea or project put forth by you through Sigma that eventually <laughs> became a reality? You know, I only know so many Alistairs, and I think I know who this one is, and I think he's having some fun with me. Thanks, Alistair, um, if you're hearing this. So the, I guess what I could say in, in response to that is um, – I'll, I'll share two things that that I don't think I've 
signed an NDA on, and I don't know whether they're coming to light, but it's funny because just today, I, I literally mean just today, I got an email to come in and, and to speak to, to some people about these things because of, there was a recent, um, this is the Reagan Defense Conference, I think it's called, it just, it was on November 7, I believe, it was covered in the Times and others, and uh, they're, they're sort of looking at, at a new way of going about things. And, and two things that I'm, I'm interested in is what I call uh, kinetic telepresence. Um, and another one being InPIC. And for folks who've read my novels, they've seen that. And it, in some ways, it has to do with the, the, the evolution of what I would call, it's not AI. It's more like, if you will, synergistic automation uh, in a variety of security and even combat scenarios. Um, I think we're, we're getting to the point where, um, you know, uh, it was uh, Tesla who actually, you know, made this comment in the 19th century about that as we became more capable with building machines that would act like humans, we would probably see ourselves using more of them in lieu of humans in these sort of environments. On the other side, you know, my feeling is we also have to be very careful that, um, you, you know, the, the, the moment that human beings on on only one side are, 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 are feeling the brunt of the action. Uh, I'm not sure that both sides then have enough tendency to, if you will, back away from confrontation or conflict as a, as a means of settling, a, settling an issue. So what I'm kind of interested in is to see the mix of what I guess I would call technological and sociological sort of assessment that uh, that might be coming down the path but but to just to just to poke back at Alistair Alistair you know oh so well that if any if if any if I could point to any of them in the real world somebody's not doing their job correctly uh, that's that's the whole thing about intelligence work or any of this sort of consulting that um, you really shouldn't know about it and so that's uh, you know so I, I wish I had something better to, to say and the things that I can th there are one or two interesting, if you will, tantalizing things that have popped up in the news that make me go, huh. Mm. But I actually, yeah, exactly. I, but I don't think that we did it. You know, my feeling is that if, uh, I think that perhaps one of the, the best uses maybe of Sigma is that uh, we go in and they ask us questions and we blue sky. There isn't a lot of government funding for blue sky anymore. That's really cut back a lot in the last 10 years. Um, can you, can you for, for those who don't know, what, what, is, what does that mean to blue sky? Oh, it's a blue sky. So you sit down and you're not being asked uh, what's going to happen in three years, what's going to happen in five years. It's more like 20 years, 30 years, something like that. For instance, one of the things that the uh, uh, Office of Net Assessment, the Pentagon, will, will look at is that you don't see in papers enough is the fact that the, the, the tilt of Chinese demographic is going to be such that 30 or 40 years from now, the great majority, not the majority of their population, but a hugely, um, uh, un an unusual shift in their bell curve of their population distribution is going to be deep retirement age. That has immense implications for economy and elder care and a variety of other things. And so you don't really have a lot of agencies tasked we're thinking about that. That's too far in the future. So they shuffle us weirdo science fiction authors in and say, well, what do you think about this? And my guess is that we probably don't come up with things so much unusual as if we can come up with, uh, with things that overlap what they're already thinking and we can do it essentially in an afternoon, it might be one of those signifiers that says, mm, yeah, well, maybe this is something that this confirms our bias in that maybe this is worth putting on an agenda to look at more seriously. And that's the last we hear of it, whether it's technological, sociological, whatever the case may be. Yeah, yeah. That kinetic telepresence uh, reminds me of chinging 
which is a, a device used by an, the author of Blue Remembered Earth, uh, Alistair Reynolds. I know Alistair, and I don't know the book because having four kids, the thing that's suffered the most is my reading. Can you? So, so can I interview you for a second? Tell me sure, about Chingy. No, the idea is that you uh, you send like an, an emulation of your consciousness into what is essentially an otherwise a robot uh, on the other end, and it predicts what you would be saying, and then kind of checks as the signal catches up, so that you can conduct things in real time. Even though there's a delay in the transmission, uh, yes, very similar, and and probably r algorithms with related purposes, but driven very differently. For mm -hmm. instance, if you were thinking about um, something that's involved in a security situation, um, there, there's there's the old saying that in combat there are two types of there are two types of combatants: the quick and the dead, and therefore even a quarter second time delay is crucial. At the, so so on the one hand, you want perhaps the, the natural implication would be AI. I'm not necessarily, I'm not saying I'm not a fan of AI research, but I'm really, really hesitant about putting, putting any lives anywhere uh, at the, at the, you know, at the decision-making process of, a, of an unguided machine. Mm -hmm. um, human, human conscience and human decision and, quite frankly, human senses of guilt and restraint, I think, need to always be in that circuit. But then, so, so the, the kinetic telepresence is a way of, of trying to marry that, if you will. So there's a lot of parallels between what, uh, what um, Alistair, I think, is talking about and the kinetic telepresence notion. That's 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 extremely fascinating. I love how these these ideas, you know, even though they're written by so many different authors with disparate points of view and and they these these similar ideas just spring up throughout throughout sci-fi and fantasy. It, it you know, it's just it's it's always so wonderful to me how that that kind of happens. So now are, if either one of you are history geeks, I'll give you an interesting an interesting piece of uh, of cocktail party data for that one. Great. Um so at any rate, we all think of uh, of Robert Goddard as the father of modern rocketry, right? Sure. You know, the little thing he launches, I think, in 1920. What is it? Except for that there was a French, uh, French fellow by the name, it begins with a P and I can't think of his name, who was talking about the same thing at the same moment. But none of, none of either one's work had been translated into the language that the other one could understand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Except for that, 30 years earlier, the father, if so to speak, the, uh, very revered in Russia, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, wrote the reaction principle. But he'd never been translated out of Russia. But you have this 30-year this block of time where I've, I've read, I can't remember the name of the cultural critic, who talks about it as a mind step. That culture, and I think this is going maybe to what you were saying, Veronica, th this notion that a culture is almost sort of getting itself ready to birth a new idea, mm -hmm. and it's popping up in different places, in different ways, in different languages. And, you know, everybody is in a rush to put up their hand and say, I thought it up, I thought it up. Nah, actually, there's probably some collective credit. You know, you're all getting mm -hmm. ready to take that step. I love it. Well, Chuck, thank you so much for joining us on Sword and Laser. Of course, uh, Raising Cain is out now, right? It is indeed. It is indeed. And, uh, and, and don't and, let sequels scare you, folks. You've got the author's permission. Jump right in. I love Absolutely. that. I think that's wonderful that, that you feel strongly that a reader can just pick up at the, in, in the third book in the series. And, and I, I love that there's enough backstory going on and enough information out there that they can feel confident and, and not be scared that they've missed the first two books. And I think that's, that's pretty cool. 
Well, thanks. Uh, and I seem to recall some uh, part of the earlier question was, did I did I envision backstories and things like that, uh, which I didn't I didn't speak to. And I know you're trying to wrap up, so I'll just say this really quickly. I'm also very interested in non-traditional publishing. So one of the things that we're looking at is doing an anthology, maybe once a year, dropped in between the main releases, where we're doing some of exactly that. Uh, looking at backstories, but there's having worked in part of what I did in television was also packaging news releases. And when you do that, you realize the huge gaps there are between the story as reported, even on let's say Reuters, you know Reuters uh, tear copy versus what actually went on. So one of the things that I'm <laughs> that I'm thinking of doing is for all the stories that are written, they'll be literally the equivalent of Reuters copy, oh, and then the fun. story that follows it is what actually happened. So trying to create that you are there feeling wherever I go. Yeah, I love that idea. And you can keep up with Charles's work or Chuck's work over at charlesegannon.com and your C.E. Gannon 1 on Twitter. That is correct. Fantastic. And of course, our show is currently entirely funded by our patrons at patreon.com slash sword and laser. So thank you to all the folks out there who back our show. If you want to head over and learn more, go to patreon.com slash sword and laser. In fact, uh, you can support the show by buying books through our links as well. One of the things I did in the future was add the link to Charles' book to swordandlaser.com slash picks because we do a little bit of minor time travel. So go there. <laughs> Unless you're listening to this early, to swordandlaser.com slash picks uh, and click on any of the books there and takes you uh, right on through to Amazon and we get a little cut of the sale. And if you want to get in touch with us, our email address is feedback at swordandlaser.com. Our website is swordandlaser.com. All of our discussions happen over on goodreads.com slash swordandlaser. And you can call and leave us a voicemail at 415-7-SWORD-6. We'll see you guys next time. And thank you, Chuck, for joining us. You guys rock. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Chuck. Frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.